my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. How's it going, Aaron? Yeah, I guess before we get into it, I guess if you can give us a brief introduction, that would be great. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Chris and Mark, for setting this up and letting me come and talk a little bit about the law and inscriptions and Noster and some of the things that I've been thinking and, and writing about recently. So my name's Aaron Daniel. I'm a appellate attorney by trade, and I've been researching and writing about Bitcoin and the law for a little while now, and mostly from kind of the angle of how is Bitcoin going to transition our existing systems, our legal systems, our financial systems, less about how you know Bitcoin is fitting into our current financial systems. There's a lot of folks who are focused on that, and that's you know important for the transition immediately, you know, securities laws, et cetera, et cetera. That's not my area expertise. So I'm more interested in kind of that longer term discussion. And to that end, Mark and the rest of the, the print team were amazing and provided me an opportunity to produce an article for the recent print edition called Autonomy Through Anonymity. And this piece explored the right to privacy and anonymity and free speech and how it relates into Bitcoin. The idea was was basically to to revisit privacy and kind of reframe the the discussion because a lot of times the discussion of privacy especially outside of bitcoin and you know technical circles devolves into well this is really you know the loss of privacy is very creepy and i don't like it that google has all this information about me but like that you know whatever it's creepy i'm going to i'm going to ignore it but you know what what really privacy and anonymity allow you to do is to fully exercise all of your constitutional rights, your unalienable rights without fear of reprisal. And that is just, you know, a fundamental shift. If you say privacy is not about, you know, it's not about security. It's not about, you know, not feeling creepy. It's actually about your freedom, your right to be an autonomous individual and to choose your own moral compass in life and to set your own moral boundaries. So that that was the idea is to kind of reframe it within that. And so in, in researching the First Amendment and code specifically, you know, I went back into, you know, the Bernstein case. A lot of people are familiar with with Bernstein code is law. That's that's the case that established that. But what I didn't realize and what I've never heard anybody else talk about is that there was this secondary argument that Bernstein made. Bernstein was professor and he created an encryption algorithm that he wanted to share outside of the country. And he had to get permission from the Department of State to export this because it was classified, cryptography was classified as arms. And then arms control laws prevented you from just sending it abroad. So he, he challenged the State Department. And primarily he was arguing, well, 
this code that I've created is speech and you're infringing on my First Amendment right to speak. He also argued, though, that this specific type of code that he had written that facilitates encryption was inherently imbued with First Amendment significance because what it did was it allowed private and anonymous communications. And his attorneys in, in the pleadings, you know, set forth a lot of very you know, longstanding case law that established, yes, you have a right to associate anonymously with, with individuals. You have a right to speak anonymously. You have a, obviously a right to, to privacy under the constitution. And the, the Bernstein court didn't reach that and just said, look, code is speech in general. So we don't have to get into what type of code is more protected than other types of code. But I thought this was a really powerful argument. <clears throat> and as I started digging deeper into, you know, anonymity enabling code, privacy enhancing code, and, and, you know, whether this would be a workable framework for, you know, protecting code of all, of all types, but especially, you know, communication code. I realized that, you know, the founders of America were, they used encryption. They were, they were actually actively using privacy enhancing technology at the founding to create the new country. And, you know, the pilgrims fled England because the only way they were able to, you know, their faith was through privacy, anonymity, keeping secret who, who's a Catholic, who's a, who's a pilgrim, keeping it from the crown. And so our America was founded as these deep roots in privacy and anonymity. And if you look at, you know, the founders' writings, of course, they love to publish anonymously. Federalist Papers famously were published anonymously by Hamilton and John Jay and Madison. So you've got this long history of, of anonymity and privacy within speech in America. And even recently, I'd say in the last 10 to 20 years, the Supreme Court has kind of warmed again to this, this idea of anonymous speech. There have been a couple of cases out. There was one from 2021 in which the Supreme Court said, you have a right to anonymously donate to charities and that regulations requiring reporting of charities donors over a certain limit were unconstitutional. So right there, you've got a very recent case that involves both money, speech, association, where the Supreme Court is coming out and saying, you've got a right to do all this anonymously. So I think this concept that privacy enhancing code is inherently imbued with First Amendment significant it's, is, is a powerful argument that can protect, you know, the developers of these tools, you know, we're talking coin joins, we're talking, you know, the Chalmian mints, you know, Fediments, we're talking coin itself, core developers who are working on systems, communication protocols, code that enables anonymous and private speech, they should be protected under the, and so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna loop it in now to, to Noster and inscriptions, because those are the hot topics. Um, so I took this this framework that I developed for for Bitcoin Magazine, and it's in the current print edition, and I've applied it to these these two new protocols or you know technologies. I guess inscriptions are not technically a protocol; they're you know a, a way of using Bitcoin, a pre-existing protocol. Tooling, you might say. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, but nonetheless, code that's enabling a type of speech. But just, you know, Noster is an easy, an, an easy one to apply this framework to because, you know, it is an open source communication protocol that's allowing anonymous speech and assembly. I mean, that's basically it. It's, it, and so, you know, the developers of this system and this system itself should be under the First Amendment from onerous, onerous regulations. And so I, I've published a recent newsletter post. You can go to coinbrief.io is where I put up anything that's not in Bitcoin magazine, <laughs> which these days, you know, Mark, Mark and the rest of the team are really good about <laughs> carrying a lot of my content. So, but bitcoinbrief.io is where I published my most recent piece on Noster and inscriptions. And so you can see there the discussion on, on Noster, but you know, that's an easy case. Inscriptions is a really interesting application of this framework because you know, Bitcoin's always allowed communication of arbitrary data, you know, from the Genesis block on. It got easier and then was made a little harder in 2014 with OpReturn kind of tightening how much arbitrary data you can put into a block. And then, you know, SegWit and Taproot really opened up 
how much data you can put in the you know in the in the witness transaction. That's what that's what's enabling the the inscriptions. And before though, it was really difficult to explain to someone who was non-technical, like, well, you know, I'm not actually just sending money with Bitcoin. I can I can create these immutable messages that exist you know, on this decentralized ledger for the rest of time. And they, you know, it's, it's difficult to show them like what an op return looks like, unless it's like a super short message, like, you know, Harry loves Sally or whatever. You could probably fit that right, right into the op return transaction there, but anything larger you've, you know, the, the standard way is just using it as a timestamp where you just hash whatever data you've got and you put the hash into the Op return, and that's that's difficult again for someone who's non-technical to understand. You know what, what you're doing there. Ordinals and and inscriptions, more more specifically, it just opens this all up. It's very easy now to show someone who's non-technical. Look at this. Here's a file. It's in a block on the time chain, the Bitcoin time chain. Okay, it's in hex format here, but we can use this explorer, and and you can see the whole file, and we can interact with the file. We can view it. We can read it. You know, the King James Bible is now on the blockchain as as an inscription. Doom, you can go play, a, you know, a Doom emulator directly in, in the Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, these are examples of expression that are easy to understand as a layman and easy to see. And why that's important and why you need kind of these non-financial, why I think we need these non-financial examples of, of Bitcoin usage is that non-technical laymen like judges are going to be asked eventually to rule on the first amendment and Bitcoin at some point it's going to happen. And if they only view Bitcoin narrowly as commercial speech, that is actually going to reduce the predictions that Bitcoin and developers and folks who are using this protocol have under the first amendment because commercial speech is only entitled to what's called intermediate scrutiny. And that's an easier hurdle for the government of a state or the federal government to clear when they're trying to say, look, our, our regulations are not unconstitutional because you know, we've passed this lower level of scrutiny. It's, you have to you know, show a lawful purpose for your speech and that it's truthful speech. And then the government has to show that they have a substantial interest and that their regulations are directly advancing that substantial interest. In contrast, non-financial speech is entitled to just, you know, pure speech is entitled to strict scrutiny. That's the highest level to clear. The regulations have to be necessary to serve compelling interests and be really narrowly drawn to achieve that interest. And it's very rare that the Supreme Court or any courts ever strike down or, or ever uphold regulations under strict scrutiny. So paradoxically, in order to strengthen Bitcoin as a money free from onerous regulations, we need to build out more of these non-financial use cases and examples to show that it, there is more than just commercial transactions at, at play here and that this is a broad communications network that should receive the highest levels of, of protection. And this isn't, you know, an argument to say that or we need, you know, Bitcoin needs the state to, you know, have, have permission to operate. It's more, it's more an argument that, look, let's get all the protections we can from onerous regulations. Let's protect our developers and, and in their exercise of free speech and writing code. Because we're lucky in the United States to have this, this, you know, tradition of free speech, whether or not it, it really gets applied in, in the courts as strictly as, as we'd like, because, I mean, we all see what's going on in, um, in the UK and other parts of Europe where free speech is not as strongly enforced and there's not as strong of a tradition. You've got fake Toshi suing the core developers and trying to impose duties that would just never never fly here in the United States under the First Amendment. So the stronger we can make those protections for our, our developers and for our, our protocols themselves, you know, the, the, the longer we have to build out these, these capable systems and, and to the point where it's, you know, really pa past the point of no return or past the singularity, so to speak. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there and, 
and see if anybody wants wants to open it up for questions. Yeah, no, Aaron, I think you're going to make uh, me and Mark's job quite easy with how long that was. But I think that was an awesome rant. So I guess my first question is, how would or, or why would they say that Bitcoin is more on the com- commercial side of things? Or I think a, a commercial speech, I guess. What What do you think their reasoning would be? Because the way I right. see Bitcoin and many Bitcoiners see it, it's like an individual way to opt in. While there's businesses built on it or businesses that are the lightning business, like, you know, lightning liquidity providers or mining company like Blockstream. Like, yeah, we're all in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but I don't see it as commercial. I do see it as individuals opting in and whether companies keep it on their balance sheet. That's still like, I guess, an asset on their books. But to your point, there's, you know, inscriptions or Noster, which are more of. Uh, I guess, speech protocols. I, I guess uh, the way that I see it, it's like the internet's not considered commercial, but businesses and companies and individuals use the internet. Maybe that's a, a better comparison. That, yeah, that, that's a great that's a great comparison. And I think the difference is in why, a, I, I agree with you 100%. I'm actually in the camp that this is not, Bitcoin is not commercial speech because the definition of commercial speech is that it is a, it is a, is speech that proposes a commercial transaction, all right? And Bitcoin transactions are, you know, Bitcoin itself is not proposing transactions between individuals. Individuals propose transactions amongst themselves out of band and, you know, off chain. And then the what the Bitcoin blockchain is doing is evidencing that tr- already proposed transaction and just demonstrating that, you know, the transaction has existed so there's no no double spending. So I I think I I think under the law as it currently stands, Bitcoin is not commercial speech. However, like I said, non-technical judges, all they've ever heard is that Bitcoin is an asset and that Bitcoin is money, and that this is the new new money, new currency, digital currency, and so they're just going to reach for an easy heuristic because they're they're you know humans like all of us. We try to fit everything within our pre-existing schema. And, and so the more we can broaden Bitcoin's use case and the more examples like inscriptions we have to, to demonstrate you know, the, that free expression, that non-commercial, non-monetary expression, you know, the more we can classify Bitcoin as kind of that internet-like pro- neutral internet-like protocol as opposed to a, a purely commercial protocol. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Mark, I'll, I'll kick it over to you if you have any questions or any things you want to expand on that. Yeah, I guess just on that one in particular, like the implications of of inscriptions, do you think that this is sort of like a, you know, like a black and white event? Like once they appeared on chain, it's like, okay, we've established this as a communications protocol, or is this something where you think there has to be like regular shown culture and usage? Like, are you saying basically inscriptions are here and and we're good because of that or this culture needs to stay around and people need to keep using it this way mm-hmm. that's a good legal point. protection yeah i mean i think legally speaking the fact that it can be used this way you know it is kind of like a a, a a qualitative shift for bitcoin but that being said it's kind of like well you know i can scroll whatever message i want on a dollar bill and send it into you know the the stream of commerce but the dollar bill and cash is still money <laughs> right so if nobody's using the communications protocol for non-financial use cases I, I do think there's a risk that it falls out of of being viewed that way so yeah it's it it's not necessarily that it's a use it or lose it type situation but yes the more it is being utilized for non-financial transactions, the stronger the argument it is. Makes sense. I'm curious, just since we're talking about ordinals here, do you have any concerns about, you know, the implications of this ordinal theory, this sort of lens of viewing how Satoshis are distributed within a transaction? Do you see any legal implications on fungibility of that sort of lens being adopted from a from a legal standpoint to sort of trace Satoshis, if you will? Well, I think, you know, I, it, this is a good question and it comes up a lot in the discussion. And, right, you know, right now I'd say, I mean, look, this is an opt-in accounting heuristic, 
ordinal zoos. And so it's not something that like elliptic or chain analysis can really utilize to break Bitcoin's fungibility. One sat is still one sat. That being said, if everybody is, is using this heuristic, <laughs> right, then yeah, it, it does, it does start to undermine fungibility to that extent. But I think at that, that point, you've just got a protocol that looks so different than, than what we have now. I think the fact that this is just a way of viewing Bitcoin and it's almost, you know, it's like Ord would have to become like a, almost as, as widespread as, you know, your, your Bitcoin core implementations in that, in that case, because to really, to, to really utilize the ordinal theory, you've, you've got to be running, you've got to be running Ord. The software. I think that's. I think that's like the threshold where where you'd say like, okay, Ord is now packaged into the dominant coin fusion. Then I think you've maybe got a problem. But that I just, while it's a probable or a possible situation, I don't see it as as, as you know being probable. It also, you know, doesn't actually break practical fungibility within a transaction. So even if there was mass social adoption of that lens, it still is just an arbitrary lens, you know, within, yep. you know, Satoshi mechanism distribution, so. Yep, absolutely. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine. Yeah, I guess the next thing that I was kind of thinking where we go from here is so I know, and I'm, I'm going to mess this up. It's an appellate attorney. Is, is that correct, right? Yeah. yeah so uh, right. being an appellate attorney, I guess, where do you view yourself in, in what you want, you know, in the coming, I, I'd hate to say like your short term, medium term and long term time frame, but I guess what are your hopes with providing guidance and information for local judges or regional judges or even state and, you know, maybe even federal like Supreme Court judges with yeah. your ideas and views on Bitcoin? Or I, I guess I say this in what's the best way that we at Bitcoin Magazine, aside from helping you publish your articles, like what would be the ideal scenario or steps for educating judges or, or people in the legal framework for understanding Bitcoin, not just as a monetary asset or not just as a protocol, but, you know, kind of the other use cases that are used. I guess what are your visions or thoughts for that? Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. So what I'm doing personally, I can speak to that a little bit. So here in my, my local Bitcoin meetup, I've connected with some other attorneys in the local bar and we're setting up some presentations on Bitcoin. So at the end of March, we're doing a, a what's called a continuing legal education presentation. So lawyers and judges get credits to come and listen to us talk about Bitcoin. So we're going to try and run through, you know, we're in early innings. So we're, we're going to talk, you know, short term here. You know, I, my, my biggest goal out of this presentation is like just to get judges and attorneys to understand what private public key pairs are. Like if, if we can impress upon them 
that distinction, then we're going to avoid a lot of problems like, you know, judges inadvertently ordering disclosure of private keys when they really didn't need to or before there's been any kind of judgment against anyone. You know, that's possible and that I think has happened. And so you've seen, you know, Wyoming, who always seems to be on the vanguard of these things, the legislature is passing a bill to do just that, to, to basically prevent <clears throat> judges from ordering turnover of private keys and disclosure of private keys. You know, again, unless there's been a judgment against that person and they need to, you know, they're being compelled to pay the judgment, you know, that that's just to protect, you know, sometimes the public key is all you need just to prove, to prove, you know, what's there right on the, on the blockchain. And, and if attorneys understand that distinction, well, then you can avoid a lot of ethical issues too, because every time I go to file something on behalf of a client, I, I pretty much have to certify that there's no confidential information in what I'm filing. And if I, if there is confidential information, I have to, you know, do a lot of due diligence. I have to make sure everything's redacted. I have to contact the clerks and let them know that I'm going to be filing something with, with confidential information because all these dockets, all these court dockets are public now. And so you've got bots that are just scraping these dockets for, you know, personal identification. And if, <laughs> as we all know, once that private key gets uploaded to the internet, like, you know, <laughs> and it's gone, right? Like the meme, like it's, so that, that's the key pun intended here that I'm trying to get across just real, real basic stuff, you know, and then, and then we can move on to, to some of the more, you know, in-depth aspects of, of Bitcoin. But I think, you know, understanding that from a practical standpoint, understanding the benefits that Bitcoin brings beyond the speculative investment beyond the number goes up benefit. You know, that's what I, I, I always try to bring out the, you know, humanitarian use cases and just the freedom use cases, right? I mean, it's not necessarily just humanitarian. It's just, you know, what do you want to be, do you want to live free or not? Do you want to be in control and have absolute, absolute control over your private property? You know, we've never had a, a private We've never had a type of property like Bitcoin where it, it is completely, completely free of you know, counterparty risk. This is, you know, we get a lot of questions about you know, FTX and, oh, well, FTX just shows, you know, it's, it's you know, all in, in the ether and it's all in the cloud and it just disappears. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we created, humanity created the first asset with no counterparty risk. And then a bunch of dumbasses went and infused a bunch of counterparty risk into it for 7% yield. And that's, that is really dumb <laughs> if you think about it. All right. So, you know, it's, it's concepts like that, just like real basic, you know, one-on-one concepts that, that I'm trying to get across. And then we can, then we can get into the technical stuff as folks just become more, you know, everybody's heard of Bitcoin but everybody has, you know, has dismissed Bitcoin or accepted it at this point. You know, the more we can just, uh, you know, warm people to the benefits and, and, and to the, you know, transformational aspects of it, I think the better. Yeah, no, I think that's a lot of great points. And I have a, a buddy in one of my meetups. He actually does, like, he's a lawyer by, by trade and by practice. And he does specifically like trusts and wills and probate. And mm -hmm. it's pretty funny. So I'm on the Eastern seaboard. I won't dox myself too much, but he said, I mean, he, we're on the Eastern seaboard and he gets calls from people in, you know, Chicago saying like, Oh, this is the contact that I was told. You're like the closest lawyer to me regarding setting up Bitcoin trusts and funds. And I mean, he's heard the gambit of nightmare horror stories of attorneys yeah. or trust attorneys that are like, Oh yeah, I, this person has Bitcoin. I put their private keys in a Google doc. And he's like, all right, what, like, exactly. he's like, all right, stop whatever we're doing. We're going to go, we're going to check the wallet, you know, tell your client to check their wallet. Okay. Luckily the funds were not swept, but move it immediately to a, <laughs> like generate a new private key. And we're going to start from scratch. And the guy's like, what do you mean? It's like, you know, I have to keep it for record keeping. He's like, no, you're like risking Google or anyone hacks from, you know, confiscating this. And to your point, we're still early and people don't understand the, the magnitude of the self-sovereignty and the, the privacy That's aspect of it all. That's exactly it. That's that's exactly the nightmare scenarios that that I've heard about that I want to that I want to avoid through education. And that's that's, I think, the area of great growth 
in the in the shorter term here is is that you know inheritance planning you know wills trust and estates that's that's where i think there's a lot of consumer facing services and 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 you know products that need to be built out because that's you know we're we're bitcoin's unique in that it's not like an altcoin that's going to disappear in in one cycle and you know it is something that you are hodling if you believe in it. You're spending it too, but you know you you are keeping a stack because you think it's it's generational wealth. So if it's generational wealth, well then we need to help people protect that generational wealth. You know it's it's one thing to get the keys and to protect your keys and to pass on the keys in a secure manner to to those you're bequeathing your Bitcoin to. But there are there are legal you know we still live in a a world of laws and regulations and and taxes and so you know there are considerations that that you know every individual needs to to take into account when passing on that that bitcoin so that is that is definitely something that's the use case and the and the the area of growth i think in the next you know i'd say five years maybe and you see some of this like unchained capital is really good uh, and casa also has an inheritance type protocol but i think unchained capital is is you know they have good relationships with with you know states trust and estates attorneys that can that can help you think through this stuff so yeah good point. yeah it definitely and luckily he's been very fortunate that the three people he did help out no no funds were lost or seized so he was very thrilled but definitely there is Great. protocols and procedures that for people that are lawyers that want to venture into this that they should take advantage of uh to prevent their customers from you know getting their phones swept or losing it to your point you know thinking you're sitting on this nest egg only to check one day and see that all of it was swept because of malevolent hackers and stuff yeah or or negligent yeah, attorneys that, that too i mean i wasn't gonna blame you guys but you know that that could, that could be a potential <laughs> thing well i guess aaron my next question to you is kind of going more of the, the the federal route so i think it's really important the education you're doing locally you know in your local bar and just education through various platforms like Twitter and Bitcoin Magazine, like posting to get to a broader audience. But I guess this is something that I see that is potentially an issue. I call it like the four horsemen of the United States. And what I mean by that is there's basically four states that like the federal news I feel comes out of. It's New York, Texas, Florida, and California. Um, I'd say two of those are more adversarial. One of them is definitely more pro Bitcoin in Texas. And then, you know, Florida's, I, I wouldn't say one way or the other, I, obviously more of a red leaning state with DeSantis and, and all of that. But it basically like two ones, California, New York, that seem to be more strict or more regulation burdened when it comes to Bitcoin. Texas is more trying to welcome the entrepreneurship. And, you know, Florida is, you know, it could go either way is kind of what I'm saying. And this is just from, you know, a guy that doesn't live in one of those four states, but just the way that I see it in, in the national news. I guess, are, is there fears of, and this is brought up a lot, fears of like the bipartisan of it all, like more liberal or Democrat minded people are against it. I know there's many coalitions or people that are on the left that like Bitcoin. There's people on the right that like Bitcoin. But I guess when it comes into your wheelhouse or the legal structure, I worry that it gets politicized because California and New York, let's just say they say there's an outright ban on Bitcoin or, you know, maybe a stricter, harsher terms for Bitcoin mining where Texas and Florida, you know, welcome it more. Do you see this being the case? Do you think that there would be a federal edict or, or more of a, if the, the liberals or Democrats are in office, there's going to be harsher regulations where Republicans might ease for Bitcoin regulation stuff? I, I guess I just don't, I hope it doesn't get into the back and the forth. And I know that was kind of a long-winded answer, but is there a way that we could split down the middle of, you know, it not being partisan yeah. and kind of speaking to both sides, so to speak? Yeah, that's a big fear. That's a big fear of mine. I know it's shared by a lot of folks in the policy space too, is the politicization of Bitcoin. And I think you're right to key in on those four states. I mean, they're the biggest, the biggest states, the biggest economies, and and a lot of times the thought leaders on regulation. You know, New York, California, usually swing together, and Texas and Florida. You know, Florida is you know kind of trying to follow Texas on on Bitcoin to a certain extent, although it's not a not a huge focus. You know, Texas has a lot of incentive to to attract mining because of ERCOT and there's very specific needs there but yeah I think it's a big it's a big problem the, the politicization of it and I think there are you know I think there are coalitions and like Bitcoin Policy Institute I think is doing a great job of trying to educate and they're mostly at the federal level in Washington I think trying to educate from a nonpartisan viewpoint and they've got Folks from you know the broad spectrum of the traditional political you know spectrum you know who folks you would 
consider traditionally liberal or democratic leaning who are doing a lot of you know great great work on behalf of educating on the bitcoin to take coalition is another great group that is focused kind of at the ground level the state level the local level and and they i, I know some of their board members like amanda cavalieri has has been very clear that you know we need to keep things neutral and the idea is not necessarily that we're going to push Bitcoin, but we're going to push financial freedom. And when you talk in terms of financial freedom, you can strip away the pre-existing ideas that come with Bitcoin. And you can talk about financial freedom can mean different things to different people on the political spectrum. But everybody kind of agrees with financial freedom, right? And let, except for those in power who maybe want to restrict freedom financially for their own motives. But but as a as a concept, financial freedom. Being, being part of a financial system is financial freedom if you're on the left. Not being excluded, you know, banking the unbanked is part of financial freedom. Having the freedom to actually access the banking rails. Financial freedom, if you're maybe on the farther right, is, you know, like I can do whatever I want with my money. Although that should cut both ways because if you are, you know, say donating to, you know, pro-choice groups, and to women's clinics, well, maybe you want to be able to do that in a state that is a little bit more suspicious of that kind of monetary activity, right? So when you talk about financial freedom, that's something that cuts both ways and, and, and that all, all folks can get behind. So framing in, in, that, in that light, I think is really helpful to, to you know, separate the noise and, and to you know, have a broad, acceptable message that uh, everyone on the political spectrum can get behind. Yeah, no, I think that's really great. There was a great quote by, I think, Anita Posh said this recently, and it was, uh, you know, keeping the unbanked unbanked through Bitcoin. I thought that was very, very clever. And, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 her point was kind of saying, you know, helping people that are less fortunate, left, right, wherever, or just helping people and not getting burdened down with a burdensome regulation. I'll kick it over to Mark. I, I guess, Aaron, thanks for uh, the points that you're bringing up. Really great stuff. But yeah, Mark, if you have a question, I'll think of one to follow up. Yeah, I was curious if you had any comments on the Tornado Cash developer, Alexei Pertsev, who was <clears throat> sanctioned, I think, last fall for work with uh, the crypto mixer on the Ethereum network. Curious if you have any comments on that. I know you talked about, you know, a lot of this framing is to, you know, to protect developers, especially developers working on privacy protocols. Do you have any comments, That's, potential updates or, or precedent on that? Yeah, thanks. I don't know about updates. I haven't been following it as closely as, as I was initially. I mean, I think... I think what I guess the Dutch have arrested him and are charging him. And I think the the most recent news I saw was they were, you know, trying to loop in um trying to loop him into the Lazarus group's use of Tornado Cash, which is the you know North Korean hacking group. And the way I think they were trying to do that and to to get liability on him was you know, through the token. Cause cause the system had its own token and so you know you can you can try and get as nuanced as you want but when you when you issue your own token regardless of it whether you call it a utility token or you know a you know, governance token or what have you like it's back to the easy heuristics it's very easy for a regulator or you know a, a prosecutor to say hmm looks like you're profiting off of the north koreans use of your system it looks like we're going to get you with money laundering too, an evasion of you know, monetary controls and supporting terror. But yeah, I, I mean, this is what happened with Tornado Cash is what started me down this whole rabbit hole and, and was part of the impetus of, of my article in the print edition is that, yeah, I mean, Tornado Cash was a privacy enhancing tool and, and the developers came under, you know, heavy, heavy scrutiny, were arrested and just for providing this tool that was neutral that anyone could use just like the internet is neutral and anyone can use it just because North Korea is using the internet doesn't mean that, you know, we're all complicit. Right. So yeah, I think, I think that was a big wake up call to a lot of people. I know it was a huge wake up call for developers because I spoke with some, you know, confidentially and, and, you know, they shifted the way they operated the ones I spoke to after, after that happened. 
and were really closely scrutinizing what was going on. If they if they did anything that came close to you know a privacy enhancing tool or or even you know interfaced with a privacy enhancing tool, they were they were trying to figure out what to do. And look, that's an example of the chilling effect, right? That that these developers are now curtailing voluntarily their speech, you know, their speech through code because of overzealous regulations on privacy enhancing tools. So that's, that's exactly what, you know, I would like to avoid. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what the first amendment is there to protect is against, you know, the, this great chilling effect that regulations have on speech. Yeah, no, I think that's great stuff, Aaron. Aaron, I, I guess my next question kind of, I know you're really big in, you know, constitution law and, you know, kind of protecting individuals' rights from the state with a lot of the work you do. And, and I know even a great episode of what Bitcoin did when you were on with Peter, and you gave him and his uh, producers, you know, the pocket constitutions, which I thought was was cool. I, I guess <laughs> my one thing is, while Bitcoin is very resilient, and when it's attacked, it gets stronger, I've heard, and, and let me just I'll, I'll lay this out. I, I don't agree with necessarily the middle one, but is there other ways to protect Bitcoin than just the First Amendment? And God forbid that Bitcoin goes down and you know, the, car, the courts rule up to the highest, the highest court in the land. Supreme Court rules that, you know, oh, no, it's just commercial. It's commercial speech. So there's less protections. Is there and this is the one I don't really agree with. Is there a grounds to say, oh, well, it can be protected under the Second Amendment in the Constitution or even the Fourth Amendment? So the Second Amendment saying like, oh, Bitcoin's a munition or, you know, it's a way of protecting yourself like it's seen as a weapon. And, and I know that's a controversial statement. I'm not saying I agree with this, but would that be another way that lawyers could fight this or potentially the Fourth Amendment, that improper search and seizure? Like the government's like, oh, you need to tell us what Bitcoin you own. You're like, well, you don't have a warrant and I'm not showing you my private keys, nor am I telling you the public keys that I have. Obviously, you know, they can pressure companies through the KYC mechanism to be like, hey, well, the individual doesn't have to. But if this business wants to stay here and doesn't want to be considered money yeah. laundering, like we saw with the tornado cash thing or, or 80. in abetting criminals, you need to give over your clients who KYC'd with you, and then they tell them Chris owns, Chris, Mark, yeah. and Aaron own this Bitcoin because we sold it to them and they withdrew it, you know, and maybe that's a more extreme example, but is there ways of the Second and Fourth Amendment, or, or even an amendment I'm missing, to protect ourselves if, God forbid, the First Amendment, you know, is not seen sufficient enough? Yeah, and I'll preface the answer just by saying, you know, something I, I told Peter on the podcast, too, is like, Look, at the end of the day, the Constitution is acknowledging pre-existing unalienable fundamental rights. It's not the source of your rights. And I think that is a huge, huge misconception that a lot of folks have. Now, practically speaking, that can be cold solace because if it's not in the Constitution, sometimes it needs to be there expressly before the Supreme Court will, will recognize it. We saw that in, in the Dobbs opinion on abortion recently. It, it can it can be a sticky situation. But, you know, that that being said, on the Second Amendment, yeah, I, I've seen these arguments and I, I think there's a lot of flaws in them, both from an optics perspective and just legally speaking. I mean, there's there's like, you know, arms is is a very specific type of, you know, if, if you're going to say that coin miners are arms, you know, that ASICs are arms then you're also saying that a fence is an arm, right? And that you, <laughs> you have a Second Amendment right to put up a fence that is made of concrete and is 20 feet high, right? And so all my local ordinances that tell me I can only have a fence that's five feet high and that it's made of a specific type of wood are unconstitutional. No, that's not, <laughs> that, that's just plainly wrong, okay? It, it's an interesting theory and I get, I, I, I understand the, the, you know, understand where it's coming from, right? It's this, I, you want to you wanna show Bitcoin mining for what it is, which is security and protection. And arms can be protection and arms can be used for self-defense, but under the constitution, they've got you know, a very, very, specific, very specific concept. And now when it comes to the fourth amendment, 
Yeah, I mean, the the problem with the Fourth Amendment right now is you've got this concept, like just like you were saying and hinting at with the intermediaries divulging your information. The government can just sidestep the first Fourth Amendment by going to these private institutions that you have, quote unquote, voluntarily given your information to. And that's called the third party doctrine, which, you know, was created around the 70s by the Supreme Court. And, and right, it just means that once you give up your financial information to that third party, you no longer have an expectation of privacy in it. And, and the law enforcement doesn't need a warrant to get it. Now, that being said, this current court appears very hostile, or at least some of the judges appear very hostile to the third party doctrine. One of the cases that I discussed in, in the print article was this case, this Carpenter case, Carpenter U versus US, which didn't involve financial records. It involved cell site location information. And in a concurrence, Justice Gorsuch basically said, we need to return to a property-based understanding of privacy and just jettison the, the third party doctrine and this reasonable expectation of privacy and say, look, you, just because you give your data, in some cases, your modern day papers and effects, right? That's a quote from the Fourth Amendment, papers and effects to a third party doesn't mean you lose your expectation of privacy in it or your Fourth Amendment interests in it, right? So, so this is where some of the folks on the Supreme Court's heads are at right now. So can you imagine now taking that data, which they're saying you might, you might never lose your, you might not lose your Fourth Amendment rights to just because you entrust it to someone else. And now you, you what if you encrypt it? right and put it in a, a an encryption envelope well now it's even more shielded from third party inspection and you're you're gaining you're really preserving that fourth amendment protection so i think the fourth amendment is is important and hopefully we will see the that third party doctrine chipped away at over the coming years and kind of restore an original understanding of the fourth amendment and your your privacy right to privacy in your property but until then we are we are stuck with our you know anti money laundering, KYC regime, third party doctrine, all of that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think I have one more question, then I'll kick over to Mark, and then we're getting towards the top of the hour, and we'll probably wrap up. So I guess my last thing is I, I fully expect you know th things aren't going to change in the terms uh, of the courts when it comes to lawsuits and things like that. You know, over the years we're going to still see people get sued or you know, divorce, divorce court, people splitting up and how to split up the Bitcoin. I know that that is a difficult process right now. And how much should they have? And where is it if it's hidden or, you know, different privacy practices. But I guess my question is, does Bitcoin on a long enough time time horizon, you know, does the issue of if we think Bitcoin's going to do what it keeps doing, if a court case drags on for 20 years, 15 years, 30 years, whatever it may be between a company and the state or between two individuals, and, and I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't know. When normally you get charged with something, do they have to do the costs up front? What I mean by this is, let's just say, you know, you're debating and they say in fiat currency, I owe a million dollars to Mark. But then, you know, Bitcoin over the next 30 years goes to 10 million apiece. It's like, yeah, they denominate it in fiat currency, but that is a much lower standard. Or do you think at the end of the, the, the trial, if I lose and I owe Mark a million dollars, would they reassess it at the new rate? And, and what I mean by that is, you know, are they going to do it based on one Bitcoin or do they going to say on... On, in fiat yeah. terms, I guess is what I'm trying to denote. Yeah, this is this is a great question. Something I've thought about too, and and maybe will be something I write about in the near term future. This is this kind of this concept of what I've I've been calling like a, a Bitcoin standard judgment, right? Like you know, our judgments are going to be, you know, you want a judgment that's denominated in Bitcoin. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, and, and how do you achieve that? right with within the law i mean you could lobby your legislature to pass some kind of law i i have suggested that a, a a good framework a good policy that might get us towards that <clears throat> is just kind of a freedom of contract type law that says two parties who enter into an agreement so this would be contract based, but it, it starts to get us where we want to go. Two individuals who enter into an agreement in a specified medium of exchange. So it doesn't have to be Bitcoin. It could be gold, could be ETH, whatever, whatever. But that, when a judgment is entered enforcing the rights under that contract, say I owe you 10 Bitcoin, that the judgment has to be rendered in the chosen medium of exchange between the parties. 
And this isn't like a super new concept. It's actually a concept that fell out, you know, over a hundred years ago. It, after the Civil War, there were gold clauses out, out west in, in all the contracts because California and some of the other West Coast states had really strong gold-based economies, right? Obviously, because of the because of the, uh, the gold rush. And all their contracts were denominated in gold and specified that they had to be paid in gold because the federal government was coming in with the greenback, which was their, their brand spanking new fiat bills and trying to push that through. And, uh, and the merchants didn't want to accept this in lieu of gold in satisfaction of their pre-existing debts. And so they, they lobbied the California legislature who passed this specific performance law is what it was called that said, you know, chosen medium of exchange will be enforced within the judgment. And that's how California kind of sidestepped this legal tender debate. Those fell out of vogue because then, well, they, a lot of the gold contracts got nullified in the 30s, right? Along with, you know, as Bitcoiners, our favorite executive order 6102, confiscation of, of gold, et cetera. But another huge legal battle was invalidating all the pre-existing gold clauses that specified that repayment had to be in gold dollar, not dollar, you know, dollar denomination. So all that is to say, yes, th this, this idea of where, how do you denominate, do you denominate in fiat? Do you denominate in Bitcoin? The default is going to be fiat. And, but that's not always the case. So actually out of Florida, which is where I'm based, where I practice a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> there was a, to your point, a family law case, divorce that involved Bitcoin. And the appellate court was ruling on an issue that didn't necessarily relate to the Bitcoin, splitting up the Bitcoin, but nonetheless, it, it was discussing how the Bitcoin was, was being treated. And in this case, the trial court treated one Bitcoin as one Bitcoin. The appellate court also treated Bitcoin as, as one Bitcoin and said, you know, in 2017 or wherever it started, you know, the, the parties split up and, uh, you know, one, the wife got, was supposed to get half of the Bitcoin and the husband was supposed to get half, but then the husband also owed like back childcare. And so they offset the Bitcoin he was going to get by, and this is where it turned into fiat, by the fiat amount of that childcare payment at the time that it was due. So that's, you know, again, to your point, a case where kind of a mix of we've got one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin and we're not, you know, converting it to fiat to distribute it out between the, the husband and the wife, but offsetting the Bitcoin with pre-existing obligations and other obligations between the husband and the wife, there was a conversion to fiat. And so, you know, the, I think the husband probably got screwed on that one based on <laughs> which, which conversion date they, they picked. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Mark, anything you want to add and then we'll do kind of just closing wrap up here. Yeah, I guess I'd leave you with this right at, you know, when we got a few minutes left here, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of movement right now, you know, from the regulatory regime, you know, they're really signaling, especially in, you know, the, to put it nicely, the altcoin space. But I'm curious, how do you see this regulatory signaling playing out in regards to Bitcoin, especially with some of the, like the smaller attack surface due to the way that it was designed versus some of these other ones? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a divide, right? I mean, what was it like the New York Times Magazine had that interview with Ginsler, the SEC chair the other day. And, you know, he again said, Bitcoin, everything but Bitcoin is a security, basically, which might or might not be true under, under the Howey test. But I think in general, what we're seeing is this, this concept of coins, unique origin story, as I think the way they put it, is really driving the bus, I think, on on how a lot of a lot of these regulations are are being perceived. Because it, it, again, at the end of the day, it's like if you're a regulator, like <clears throat> you want you want to score some wins, right? And you you maybe even want to get some like disgorgement involved, right? Like, so why are you going to go after Bitcoin? Who are you going to like? What Satoshi's anonymous, right? He's gone. Like how <laughs> Finney's gone. If you wanted to call him a, a you know an issuer. Of Bitcoin, you know, there are a few folks who are not anonymous who were around in those early days, but there's no like, you know, founding. There's no foundation linked to 
to Bitcoin. There's 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 not there's nothing there's no pre mine to disgorge if if there's a violation of securities laws. So much easier to go after this low hanging fruit and all these other altcoins that that have founders and pre mines and and you know say they're violating securities laws. It'll be interesting to see what happens in that Ripple case and and, and where the courts come down on on you know securitization and whether Ripple's a security and and how they apply the Howey test there. But I think again for Bitcoin it doesn't you know there there's not as much of an attack surface there. I think the you know. The real regulatory attacks are, are, you know, going back to, you know, gating the on-ramps and KYC, you know, your customer laws and things of that nature. That's, you know, the more you can, the more we can spin up a, a circular economy that doesn't rely on, you know, gated institutions and intermediaries, uh, the better, you know, just, it's hard to do, but it's like, what was it? I think Matt Odell, I heard him say something a while back that was like somebody asked him well how can i how can i get into bitcoin how can i help you know i really want to be and he was like dude what do you do what, what's your profession you're a doctor just be a bitcoin doctor just be a doctor and like charge you know accept bitcoin right and and earn bitcoin so the more we can earn and spend in bitcoin and get that circular economy going that's what's so cool about noster too i'll just tie it all back into noster is like you know it's a huge use case for lightning i mean it's it's so weird when you're over on Noster and you're like zapping people, right? You've got a button, you you tap it on a note and you open up your lightning wallet and you send value straight straight through the internet to that person because you you know read a, a note that made you chuckle. And, and then you switch back over to Twitter and you're like, wow, that was really funny tweet. Let me, oh, I can't zap you. <laughs> I can't I can't send you value through this this dinosaur of a, of a platform. It's the more we can see implementations like that, this value for value, that's that that's where Bitcoin can go with the Lightning Network now that no other currency can go and no other, um, you know, really no other coin can can do what Lightning's doing over over Noster right now. It's it's incredible to see. So more of that and let's protect our let's protect our devs if you're a dev go anonymous <laughs> spin up spin up a new spin up a new identity go anonymous please i hope that's what the bitcoin core developers are doing who are stepping down because you know until we get these protections in place in, in, in through the courts it's it's much easier to do it anonymously easier said than done look at me i'm i'm a you know a, a doxed attorney who's just you know not even building anything and telling you what to do but that would be my not legal advice, just my opinion as an individual. Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron. I guess any closing thoughts you want to say here, then I'll kick it to Remark, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, no, the only closing remarks I'll have are if, if any of this was interesting and, and not super boring to you, you can find more of this type of, of writing analysis at bitcoinbrief.io. Follow me on on Twitter, but click click my profile and go find me on Noster too, because I'm spending less and less time over here. Subscribe to the newsletter, and that way I I can connect with everyone, and we can move our 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 contacts off of this platform and 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 elsewhere. Because yeah, I mean this this platform was literally broken today. <laughs> so that's 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 how I'll end it. Thanks, Aaron. Mark, anything you want to add there? I just want to say thanks, Aaron. You know, amazing piece. I love the way you look at Bitcoin, and I uh, appreciate you uh, spending some time yeah, on this Monday with us. Yeah, thank, some, thank uh, you and the whole the whole print yeah. team, Annabelle and Joe. Annabelle and her design team just did an amazing job. Just, just the whole magazine looks beautiful. If if y'all in the audience have not picked it up, don't you don't have to read my article. But there's a lot of great stuff in there, and the uh, you know the like I said, it's everybody I show it to is like wow. This is this is a really nice magazine. Like a lot of work work went into this. I'm like, yeah, we're we're not really all like you know hackers hanging out in our mom's basement. Like this is a real industry with like real professionals. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Mark, where can people get the magazine? I don't know if you have a, a discount code for people to get, or if you know they could order the uh, the broke issue and check out SBF's lovely face on the cover. Yeah, check out store.bitcoinmagazine.com. You can grab it at 
some participating Barnes and Noble across the nation. We got it up in some spots in Canada as well. Yeah, support the magazine, support writers, contributors like Aaron. And uh, yeah, we'll absolutely see you next time. Thanks so much for uh, spending your time with us and have a beautiful week. Have a good one, everyone. Remember to get your tickets to to Bitcoin 2023. You can go to b.tc forward slash conference. You can use the code BMLive to get a discount there and have great conversations like this in Miami. Thanks so much, Aaron, for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you. Mark, thanks for joining. We'll catch you on the next one, everyone. Have a good one. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine.